Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And we're here today with Alyssa Jackson of the Adventures in Pod Taste Podcast. Welcome, Alyssa. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for having me. We're so glad that you're here. Today, we're talking about 1964 Newberry Honor Book, Rascal, A Memoir of a Better Era by Sterling North. And we are drinking a drink called the Salty Raccoon. Which sounds dirty, but it's not. (laughs) Just salty. We have a description from the original New York Times review written by Hal Borland on August 25th, 1963. The subtitle of this warm-hearted story of a boy and his pet raccoon sets its keynote. Beyond being a charming true animal story, it's also an account of life in a Wisconsin village in 1918 when Sterling North was 11 years old. Rascal, the raccoon, is the story's hero, but the whole book is a picture of that simpler time and place fondly remembered. At first, Rascal's a kit so small he must be fed with an eyedropper, but he grows into a wise and clever raccoon, a companion who leads young Sterling into all kinds of predicaments and adventures. Alyssa, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background with children's literature. Sure. So my background goes way back, 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 so far back. Uh, when I was a kid, my mom... Um, met a man named Bob, and he worked for a his own individual book fair company. So I would go to the warehouse with my mom, and I would label books, and I was able to get any book I wanted. It was amazing. And then he that company was bought by Scholastic, so then I got access to even more books. And for I'm one of those people who I have to have reading material everywhere I go. And I would get in trouble for, I would have a book under the kitchen table. I'd have a book under the table at school. It was a dark time in my life. Um, And then uh, she and Bob got along so well together. They opened a bookstore in uh, Marietta Square here in, uh, in Georgia. And they owned that for four years. And that was my first job was uh, being a checkout clerk at the bookstore, and then helping host children's birthday parties. That's so much fun. What was it called? (laughs) It was called the Pickle Patch Bookstore, and it was designed to look like it was outside, inside. So we had this huge paper mache tree in the middle of the store, and it had a cutout in the trunk so you could go in and read like a little reading nook. It was super, super, super cute. Yeah, really, really great store. And because it was a sleepy, you know, Marietta Square was not the uh, hotbed of activity it is today. I spent most of my days reading. So um, I took that love of children's, and so children's literature has been a part of my life, on, you know, throughout. I didn't grow out of it at any, at any point. And uh, I translated that into an internship at Peachtree Publishers, which is a small independent publishing company here in Atlanta. And I love Peachtree Publishers. They're the best. <laughs> they are the best. Uh, once a peach, forever a peach is our saying. And I, I was an intern there for a year and, or for um, six months and then got a full-time job. So I was in the editorial department, which was amazing, and got to read a lot of incredible books and make a lot of incredible friends with authors and workers there alike. So I'm no longer in publishing, unfortunately, uh, but now I do write for a pop culture website. So I still get to read books, mostly more graphic novels now, but still forever love children's literature. (laughs) 
And you have a special connection to this book. I do. So uh, I babysat for the same family for four years, and they had two little girls, uh, Betsy and Emily, and every year at Christmas, uh, they would give me a present. And Christmas of 1992, and I know that because it's inscribed in the book, uh, Rascal was my Christmas present. And I can't remember exactly why this book was chosen. I feel like the mom had a connection. Like it was a book she had read when she was young, and she gave it to me, and I was so charmed by it. And this is one of those books that's always stayed with me. So it's a very long, I'm not going to say how old I am, but it's a long time favorite. <laughs> I think you're exactly our age. Good. <laughs> Which is ageless and it's timeless a, and beautiful. So beautiful, not a line, not a wrinkle. So, so one of my favorite things about the book is the writing. Um, I think Sterling North has a very lovely lyrical quality to his writing. I love how evocative his prose is. I I have a very I have very specific mental images of I think everything from this book. And no kidding, my coworker had to go to Racine, Washington or was Racine, Wisconsin for a client this week and I was super jealous because I was like Wisconsin is the most beautiful place in the world <laughs> according to Sterling North. So I was very jealous. I was like, are you going to go collect agates on the banks of the lake? Sadly, that was not in her itinerary. <laughs> I, I actually, yeah, out of, okay, so we're going to maybe have a, a slightly dissenting discussion on this book, which is totally fine and more interesting than if we all just like it and we sit here and smile and don't say much. But um, the writing style, I think, is the, the thing that I do like the most about the book. There are some other things that make it hard for me to pay attention to that in some cases, but um, the writing style is very nice and the descriptiveness of the environment is amazing. I think it fits. I think it's interesting because I do think it is a, a evocative of its time. Like I think when it was written, there was a style of writing. Like it reminds me of To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. That sense of place is so strong. And so I wonder if that's part of it. Like there aren't as many modern children's books or really adult books for that matter that I can think of now that have that sort of same sense of place. Or a lot of times they'll actually, I think, rest on what's been done before. So there's a book now that's set in New York City or set in, in a other world capital, like, like a busy city or somewhere in the country. It kind of rests on the idea that you already have an idea of what that is rather than giving you exactly the experience of the author or the character. Right. Um, so yeah, I really like the writing in this to some degree. There were, there's, there's a part of me that like, I have a hard time thinking about this book aging with like, like staying interesting and readable to kids past the 60s no that's true like one of the lines i noticed early on is great to read now when he's describing a neighborhood and he describes as like he describes the homes there as like a bunch of late victorian houses and i'm like that is going to mean nothing to a 10 year old sure but for us it, it it is very evocative of a very specific and beautiful spot but um for kids a little less yeah and i i, I just think that there's a lot of things that are um, that are handled that way. And it doesn't, it's not bad. I just, I do think it's just more sophisticated than kind of what children's literature maybe has been writing wise, not maybe idea wise, um, and, or in any other respect, because there's a lot of really, uh, sophisticated children's books out there. Um, 
But I think the expectations for kids' vocabularies and sensibilities was a little bit different in the early 60s than yeah. it is now. Yeah. Though it could be – I think it would be interesting. And I do I do think you feel the adult sterling looking back mm-hmm. and that voice coming through for sure. Um, but I do think it's interesting. Like I read books similar to this when I was this age. And language has never been a barrier for me. Like you usually just skip over it or you intuit what the word means. Yeah, the from context the alone would. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do think what would be appealing or interesting to kids now reading this is that complete freedom that he has. Yeah. Like I don't think a kid growing up today has nearly <laughs> any idea oh, no. of what life would be like like this. Like no parents for the most part are very like the fact that his dad goes away for two weeks and leaves him alone in the house and he's just it that's just fine. That would never happen. You would go to jail. <laughs> well, and so that highlights another thing that I actually do like about the book, which is there are relatively few nonfiction Newbery books that are true. I mean, you get the ones that are like sort of historical fiction or the occasional like photobiography kind of a thing. But this is a nonfiction true story written by the author about his own childhood in a very factual way. So like there are things here that that would be mildly unbelievable plot elements in a fiction book. But since it's true, you you can sort of suspend that whole issue completely. And it that's very interesting to me that it's a true story. And it's such a perfect snapshot. I think one of the other things that appeals to me is it's this beautiful snapshot of this very specific time in America and specifically in that part of the country. You know, the fact that they talk about his grandfather marrying a Native American woman, I believe, or there's like, they talk about interacting with the tribes and and that kind of thing, which is still, it's like the old West almost, this very particular time that was disappearing. And I love that sense of melancholy that is through a lot of the book of that, that there's this sense of America that's being lost and I think that also ties in with the war themes because they're in the middle of World War I and he's having, even as a child, he still understands what's happening and his brother's in the middle of it. It's just a, a really fascinating slice of time. And I, I love books set in wartime. Love is a strange way to say that, but I think they're really fascinating, especially because each experience is so different. But I love I just feel like he captures that child's sense of knowing something bigger is happening in the world, but his experience of it is fairly limited. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just interesting. Cause this is a, this is like a, something I love and something I don't love about the book at the same time. So I love Sterling North's details and depictions of the animals that surround him, but I really don't like his, I guess his like urge to domesticate and his urge to capture and like cut the freedom off of these animals. Um, in some cases they're, he didn't do it. Like he didn't bring them into the like modern life, modern like, human life, like the, the birds in the church and stuff like that. But well, that you know of. Yeah. Okay. So this is my, my main sticking, <laughs> my main sticking point in this well, book. Yeah. Cause I'm like rascal, rascal, like. Okay. So yeah. in case for people who have not read the book, which I think is probably most people, 
the way he gets rascal because like all the summaries that we read in the descriptions are like he adopted or like he gets a pet and <laughs> no, 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 no he steals him <laughs> yeah his dog finds this nest of baby raccoons and they tree the mom and they dig into where the nest is and all the kits are there and they climb up the tree to catch the mom because they recognize that the, the babies are too young to be away from their mother and don't succeed in catching the mom they actually climb the tree to try to catch a mother raccoon who is trying to defend her baby. So an adult raccoon is a scary thing. Oh, absolutely. And they manage to chop off the branch that it's on and try to catch it in a bush <laughs> and fail. <laughs> and the, the raccoon runs away and all but one of the babies runs away. And so he takes this baby raccoon and that becomes Rascal. And so like I get that this is like this wonderful childhood pet, but like it's so hard for me, especially as a mom, because <laughs> I feel so much empathy for this poor raccoon mom whose baby is stolen. <laughs> it just seems so traumatic and awful. And he follows it up on very early on in the book. In, in my book, it's page 24. And he talks about how he has all these long thoughts when he's kind of working on things or hiking or whatever. And he says, one problem that puzzled me was theological. I asked myself how God could be all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-merciful and still allow so much suffering in the world. In particular, how could he have taken my gifted and gentle mother when she was only 47 years old? So thoughts like that and talking about his mom dying early are throughout this entire book. But also throughout this entire book, he is like stealing baby animals from their mothers. And it's kind of traumatic because even he's got pet skunks. And he says, these pleasant pets that I had dug from a hole the previous spring. <laughs> so like... <laughs> That's awful. And like you say, you don't know where the birds came from, but like maybe he stole the eggs out of a nest or the baby nest. And yeah. there's no way to know. Well, well, I do think I my counter argument to this is partly the usual. It was a different time. Mm -hmm. So there's that. But I also think he over the course of having Rascal just change him. Like the fact that he stops hunting, yeah. he stops trapping, and that he does let Rascal go in the end. And so, you know, I think he's, what, 11? 11, When, when yeah. the story starts? I mean, that's pretty young. It is young, but it's just sort of horrifying to me that there's like this, no sense of irony or like self-awareness. And he's always talking in this way of like, he's got these enlightened views and this sort of academically minded father. I think he's an attorney. He's an book. attorney. Yeah. And he, but he's still just like catching all these animals and just not seeing anything wrong with it. And I get that he grows, but as the like premise starting point of the book, it's kind of it's a little horrifying for me. I do kind of wonder if it's him sublimating onto these animals. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he's essentially like alone all the time, they are his family. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way he describes them as people and every single one has this very distinct personality, mm -hmm. um, I think is a, is a little bit of a, te is a testament to that. So yeah. I, this is not excusing it. It's yeah. definitely not <laughs> right. But I do think it, we do have to remember it for the time, yeah. the fact that he was, that would have been fine. You know, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. So it, I, I do unfortunately think it is a, it's one of those on when you're reading a book from this era, you yeah. have to sort of take that with a grain of salt. I think what what further, I, like to build on what Marcy was saying, and I, I recognize that it was of the time and, you know, it was very like boys will be boys. Let's give them knives no matter how old they are. They can go in the woods and do whatever they want kind of thing, you know, because that was of the time. Um, I think the part that bothered me aside from how he got Rascal was 
the continued trapping of Rascal. So Rascal is getting older and he's trying to, he's doing, he's doing mischief and he's uh, doing what raccoons do. And, you know, he had like Sterling has to like put him in a cage. He has to put him in a harness. He has to, you know, and it's like, you've made this animal so dependent on you that he won't be okay in the wild. And now you're like further caging and hobbling him. And I was <laughs> well, except like, that he oh. will be okay in the wild because we know that he's okay in the wild at the yeah, end. Eventually. And I do love the fact that he is so angry about having to put him in the cage. He lives in the cage with him. That's yeah. true. Like he does. I think that is one of those growth moments where he's like, he resists it until he absolutely has to. And I guess you could say that, that maybe would have been the chance for him to release him then. But he wasn't – I don't think he was ready yet. Like, yeah. he hadn't reached puberty, maturity. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I mean, but I get it. I completely yeah. get yeah. it. Well, I think it's like – it's one of these things where, like, again, where you read a book early on and you love it because you love it and not because of its problematic points, but in spite of them because it is a good story. Problematic faves. And, you know, it's, it's <laughs> you know, like the Little House books. Like, there are a lot of problematic things in there. Holy but I, moly. But yep. I still will always love those books. And they were, they were like, a foundational for me just in terms of who I am as a person. So mm -hmm. for the record, I've never read them. I have other shitty books that I'm attached to, but not they're, that they're shitty, but they're, I have other books that are problematic that I'm attached to, but I've never read The Little House. We are going to be so, reading them for this. They're but. so good. And read them. And then there's this insane Twitter feed that someone, because there was a book that came out that was essentially like showing how ev half of it was lies. Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing when you really figure out what she was trying to do and yeah. um and what she felt the need to fictionalize and what yeah, she did was weird really weird, weird. well her and her daughter her and her daughter yeah that's a whole but it was mostly the daughter in the yeah, end which yeah. i thought was really interesting and pa ingles barely a terrible human being <laughs> like oh my god i'm gonna be very very interested to hear your take on it because i can't think of it from an adult perspective because i've read them so many dozens of times I'm I'm really looking forward to that discussion, <laughs> especially because they're so like Little House in the Big Woods is a middle reader bordering on early reader almost. Yeah. The like, it's so simple, but I think that's part of its charm. Like I think that's what I liked about well, it. And, like as a kid, you're like Maple Sugar Party, like, right? A know, pig's bladder that you ooh, blow up and uses a balloon. What? Tree stump <laughs> that looks like a bear. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> Thing about this book for me, like I can read it and enjoy it and have some things that bother me that it's, it's worth talking about. But like the whole trapping of the animals, you're right. I think he does kind of work through that, even though it's troubling. That is one of the two main sticking points for me actually recommending this book to current young readers. The other one is his best friend who is named Oscar. Oscar. Oscar Sunderland. And they describe his family, and his mom is this motherly, sweet, beautiful, like um, Norwegian, Nor right? Yeah, Norwegian woman who speaks English with no accent, but also is very fluent in Nor Norwegian. And she makes this delicious food, and she's so sweet to him. And and then he has this like scary, hulking father who is sort of a half fluent in English. And the way they describe him is so terrifying because like. His son is terrified of him. He hides in a bush to get away from him. Like, he gets whipped when he's not home in time to milk the cows. Like, he has this wistful, like, 
idealized tone, even as he's describing the way the dad is so scary, but it just seems a very borderline child abuse to me. And to idealize that, I think, is weird when you're recommending a book to to modern young readers. Well, yeah, because you because you have you have the perspective. I think it's very clear that the book is told from Sterling North's perspective in the '60s. Yeah, right. So to not have an examination of that is is a bit odd because um, there's there's a there was a lot of uh, strides made in <laughs> uh, in. Maybe not where we are now, of course, right. but like talking about abuse and understanding something as abuse. There were more strides made between the teens and the 60s. Well, I mean, um, it seems I mean, it seems obvious from his adult perspective as he's writing this that he is aware that his father was a neglectful father, right? And so his dad, again, for those of you who haven't read it, is this attorney. And since the wife died four years previous, this kid has just basically been living in almost like a roommate situation with his dad. So his dad making a canoe in the, um, in the dining <laughs> he's room, building a canoe in the, the I loved room, that in part. The living room, yeah. I loved that part and, and making the canoe. And oh no, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I and mean, nobody minds except his sisters when they come to visit, but like his dad doesn't care kind of like whether he eats or when he's home or like how many weird animals he has in the house. But like you get the sense that he understands now that that was neglectful and it's in, in the tone of what's written. And it's obvious, but the whole like best friend abuse thing is not have any of that. See, and I, I disagree with you, actually. Yeah. I, I do. I think he said, I think he makes a point of saying like his dad was this tough old guy and he did not want to mess with him. And I, again, I think it's that a very specific time and a very specific type of people like these immigrant parent, you know, immigrants who are coming to this country and they didn't speak a lot of English and they're living in this sort of wilderness area where you had to be really tough. So I, I, I don't think it's romanticized actually. I think he's m much more romanticizing the mother of how, you know, he's the mother she, he wishes he still had. Um, and I would challenge the idea of not recommending this to a kid because I think it is a point. It's a really good discussion point of bringing up like some kids don't have good families you know some some kids have bad parents and there's not anything explicit in terms of the abuse it's all sort of implied or knowing you know mm -hmm. kids getting a tanning was standard yeah, fare that is very common then so so i think that's a way of talking about that of like this is how things were then this is how we treat this now you know i i always hesitate when you're talking about a book that has challenging topics of whether to, you know, whether recommend it to kids or not. I think of, of, of books, this one is a fairly gentle one. There are others that are much worse that you could, that Certainly. you could give. Um, I do think it's one of those things where you have to be responsible about it and you do have to set that tone of like, let's talk about what we just read. <laughs> kind of like, this is how I feel about Twilight. Let oh. your kids, if you, if your ch kid wants to read Twilight, let them then have a discussion about consent and how we don't let boys remove the carburetors from our car to keep us there. Like, let's talk about controlling abusive <laughs> boyfriends. You know, it's, there's always a place to have that be a discussion. Yeah. I guess I see your point and I, I don't disagree, but I think that it, I think context matters a lot. So I think if it were a child reading on their own independently without discussing with a parent, like that's where I would not recommend. If you're going to sit there and read it with your kid and then talk about it, that's a different story, I think. And actually, if you're in a situation like that, then 
then then probably like you're in a good place to have that discussion because you've got clearly a loving family that cares what you're reading. So sure. So that's helpful. So one of the things I think this book would be a great example for would be as like a writing exercise of character study. Because I think every character in this book from the animals to the people are such beautifully fleshed out characters. And they're all like the the hell, hellfire preacher with his <laughs> with his car that he loves you know he can't ever start yeah he, he there's warts and all yeah. <laughs> you know ever they they get fully fleshed out like his uh his uncle is an interesting character mm-hmm. and that whole farm life <laughs> is a very different experience like i i love that he goes into the descriptions of how hard the women in that household like how much his aunt does for that family without any thanks. And that's a really interesting point of view for this time period. (laughs) I I did read that his sister was not thrilled with the way he depicted his family. (laughs) Oh, really? Well, I don't blame her. I mean, he he really did reveal a lot of stuff there. His dad is absent, basically absent. I mean, although he does go on the trip with him and they have some nice moments. Um, and he really depicts his sisters as kind of harpy people, harpy (laughs) women. But loving and beautiful. Yes, but also like they were harsh and as mellow and yeah. they were making him clean and, you God know, forbid. be like civilized. <laughs> and and like, he he didn't seem very uh, into that. And he I felt like he took them to task a little bit. And I thought it was kind of funny, actually. <laughs> Especially from an 11 year old boy's perspective. Well, what yeah. worse thing to come in and be like, you can't build a canoe in the living room. <laughs> well, why you. not? <laughs> Dad doesn't mind. Yeah. Right. Any reservations I might have, notwithstanding, this book got big. Like, it won a ton of awards. Um, and I didn't realize that this is so crazy. So not only did it get made into a Disney movie in 1969, but it got made into a 52-episode anime in Japan. What? That was wildly popular and is actually responsible for the accidental um, introduction of raccoons to Japan. <laughs> What? So, so there's like a map online. So like Mario Raccoon Mario is f- from Rascal. Like, well, it was called it was called Rascal Raccoon or uh, Rascal the Raccoon, and only in Japanese. And do you okay. know about what year? Uh, no, but it was back at that time. We can find oh. out what time it was. But it was an older one, right? And so there's this map online of where raccoons live in the world, and there's like there's a tiny colony over here, and there's some outside of Germany. But apparently. After this uh, anime series started, it was so popular that for every year that it was going, 1,500 or so raccoons were imported as pets to Japan, and now they are in every prefecture in Japan. Oh, no. <laughs> All because of this book. Are, are they, like, invasive and terrible over there? Well, I mean, they're raccoons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they're everywhere. That's wild isn't that crazy okay do you guys have you ever heard a raccoon laugh yeah oh i don't know it sounds like a mad person on drugs and if you're in the woods in a tent and it's in the middle of the night you think you're about to get murdered this is why i don't go camping have i told you my raccoon story no okay so as a kid so i'm from florida where everything is crazy anyway it's a hellscape but we would go on vacation to south florida because i'm from orlando we would go to the beach all the time and there was this one place that we used to love to stay 
before it burned down, which is a whole different story. But <laughs> the, the way you have to build there, all the buildings are up on pilings because it floods sometimes. And there were raccoons everywhere. So like all the trash cans had like chains on them and stuff because the raccoons, once it hit dusk, the raccoons were everywhere. Oh, sure. Um, but you kind of felt safe about it because you're up on these pilings. But we're in this rented house. And one morning I come out and I'm like bleary. And I'm, I don't know, I could have been, I must have been around 10. And I had this little inflatable boat with two paddles. And I was like, what happened to my paddles? They were these plastic, pretty sturdy paddles. And it turned out, because they looked all scratched. And it turned out that in the middle of the night, my dad heard this noise and he thought that we were being broken into. And so he came out into the living room of the house, which is one of those that has a little divider into the kitchen. And sitting on the top of the refrigerator with a loaf of bread <gasps> under one arm and the other hand in the, the bag of sugar was a raccoon just like stuffing it. <laughs> oh my God. And it was so upset that somebody had interrupted him that the thing like drops its stuff and rears back and hisses at my dad. Oh my God. And so the scratches on my paddle are because my dad had to take the paddles and get it back out the window <laughs> that it had, it had shimmied up the pilings and come through a window that was just screened and not glass. Like we didn't close it all the way for the breeze. And my dad had to like get this angry raccoon out of the place that we were staying. And I slept through all of it. But when I woke up, like there was like teeth <laughs> all over these plastic paddles. It was absurd. I am way too terrified of rabid raccoons <laughs> ever since there is a this american life episode they did that was surrounded by Hall about halloween it was on halloween and it was all true stories so one was like it's a classic ghost story and then it turns out it's just carbon monoxide poisoning <laughs> <laughs> but one of them is this woman in upstate new york and she was like walk taking a, a beautiful winter day's walk and she gets attacked by a raccoon and now i'm like terrified and my sister had a rabid raccoon in her backyard and like she's calling and telling my mom and I about it she's like oh yeah all the kids you know that we caught him back for the kids back from the bus stop and then we're all in the house drinking wine watching the cops come shoot this oh raccoon at him and I'm like oh my god <laughs> so another thing that was really interesting that I thought that I read in the Wikipedia article of course um, was that so he became like a newspaper journalist right he was pretty prominent at the time and uh, com I, this is, I thought you would think this was interesting, but comics were, I guess, a fairly new art form. And he was one of the earliest and most outspoken uh, opponents of yeah. comics. He hated the format. And so I think it is hilarious that it became an anime series. And that's why it's like worldwide popular. <laughs> yeah. Ultimate irony. Good. Oh. <laughs> Good. Take that, Sterling North. Take that, Mr. North. Did you know his house got made into a museum? Yes. Because I read the Wikipedia article too. Because I was like... I remember I had never heard of this book. You know, when it was, when it was given to me, right. I knew nothing about it. And then when the internet came around and I was able to dive, I was like, oh, oh, he was a big deal. And like his sister was like a very well-known poet. Yeah. And, all, and I was like, who knew? Um, so yeah, I, if I ever end up in Wisconsin, I am going to that house for sure. They have like the high chair that he sat in at the table. The raccoon sat in a, in a high in a chair high at the chair. table to eat. So it's a rascal museum too. It is a rascal museum. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of like the stuff mentioned in the book, which I, I would make fun of a little bit, except that I would 100% go to the Little House Museum. Let's talk about our read-alikes and read-betters. Alyssa, what do you have? Sure. So 
I think the ultimate read alike for me for this book is Farmer Boy by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Uh, such a good book. It's such a good book. Um, I I think I was a little in love with Alonzo because of that book. It has some similar, like I think um, Sterling's farm experiences are very similar to Lorenzo's, though even though he had much less responsibility. Mm-hmm. But that that idea of a small town boy and that slice of life from that particular time and place, I think has a very similar, it's not nearly as charmingly written um, because it's a much simpler style, but I just think it's a, it's a lovely book. Again, capturing like a very specific time and place. And actually that works really well too, as a parallel, just because later on in the books, even though he's with his brother, like they're still on their own. Like, yes. With total independence, which makes sense. Did you have more? Oh, I have so many more. Um, <laughs> so I was trying to think of like, for me, the the comparator was was that sort of slice of life, small town boy coming of age. So this book is not actually, um, it is not a children's book. But I think if you had a precocious child, like I read Stephen King when I was fairly young, I would not say eight years old, Mm -hmm. but maybe like 12, 13, certain to get. There is a book called Boy's Life by Robert McCammon. I've never read that. I love that that book. It's so good. So it's partly a, a story of these four boys growing up in a small town in Alabama. And at the very beginning of the book, uh, the boy and his father witness a murder and or they 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 witness a car going into a lake and the dad goes in to try to save the person and realize they've been beaten and they're trapped into the car and so like the, the boy doesn't realize quite what's happening so it's partly like and it's interesting because there's a character later in the book who is sort of the town nutter and uh he is says i wrote this beautiful. I wanted to write about what I loved and what I love is this town. And then the publisher said, well, murder is very in right now. So he added in this murder and it, that's kind of what the book does. Like it kind of has shoehorns a little bit, this murder mystery into what I think works much better as just a slice of life, but it is so charming and it made me cry in certain places because it is very much about it deals with death of a friend. You know, there it's that coming of age, sort of the loss of innocence. Um, talk about like messed up families. There's a boy that they meet who has a very complicated life. It's just a beautiful, I love that book. I have read it many, many, many times. And it has like a fun supernatural element to it in a certain way, but not like the whole book, just a little piece of it. Um, so yeah, huge, huge recommend on that. Uh, another, if we're talking about animal stories, um, a book that I love a lot is called Never Cry Wolf by Farley Moat. And Farley Moat is partly has written some um, books for young readers. This book is a little bit half and half, I'd say. I think it's written for more of an all ages audience. But he is a scientist and he is studying wolves for the US government. And so he gets flown up to Alaska and dropped into the wilderness and sets up his his observation. And he's right at sort of the apex of where this wolf family is. And he observes them for a year. And so you get to know, like he kind of assigns them like the father and the mother and the pups and the, the wolf uncle <laughs> who comes in. And it's this beautiful environmental story about 
everything we knew about wolves is untrue. And so he gets to know these animals and it's also how sort of he changes. It's a great, great book. And it's super short too. It's a really fast read. To Kill a Mockingbird, we mentioned uh, Maniac McGee by oh, Jerry Spinelli. Yeah. Another one of these books that I have read, I don't even know how many times. I was given that one as a kid. And it's another one of those, it's a very specific time and place. I think that that's a book that is relevant now because of the racial politics of it. I think it still holds up so beautifully. Um, and that, again, that loss of innocence, sort of realizing what the world is really like. And I, it has animals in it too, the buffalo at the uh, mm -hmm. at the zoo. And the last one, <laughs> I God, I just love it. I love Jerry Spinelli. Like, <laughs> how is he such a good writer? Star Girl is one of my oh, favorites. It's so good. It's so good. Um, the last one I will mention is Tuck Everlasting by Natalie Babbitt. Partly because it's set in a very similar time, like it's right around the turn of the century. Uh, another this one more for as a girl character, but again, that sort of coming of age. Um, but it has that sort of lyrical quality. I feel like Natalie Babbitt's writing has that very lyrical, yeah. evocative. Like, have you all ever read The Search for Delicious? Oh, I did, but it was a long time ago. It's more of a middle reader book. It is. In our fourth season, we're going to be talking about Ninoch Rise. Oh, I wish I haven't read. I need, oh, I need to like really good. go read all of her stuff. That one is but amazing. But The Search for Delicious, it's so, oh, it's just so precious. I like, I love, it's just this beautiful little, like, um, very fairy tale-esque about this, um, um, someone is writing a dictionary in this kingdom and no one can agree on what the definition of delicious is. Like someone is like, it's the taste of a red ripe apple on a day. And the it, it becomes like contentious. And so this guy, this boy is sent out into the world to take a survey of what everyone's definition of delicious is. And then there's this side story. He comes across a mermaid and she's, it's just lovely. So anyway, that is my very long list of books. So That's a great list. Mm -hmm. um, my list is very short. <laughs> I've got to read a like, which is Old Yeller, which probably everybody's familiar with, but I think uh, kind of the same feel of like being in a different time period mm -hmm. and having different um, situations that you'd be in and more, more independence. And like, of course, then losing your pet in a totally different way, but emotionally traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> it's honestly, that's and old yeller is not really like my favorite book to read, but if you liked this book and you want something in the same vein, I would say that's probably like it. Uh, I have a read better which is the Penderwick series by Jean Birdsall, just because sort of what you were talking about before about a sense of place and a, a really like well described and evocative, like just specific world. And obviously it's a realistic book. Um, well, I don't know about obviously, I don't know if everybody's read the Penderwicks, but basically it is a story of these sisters and they're, regular life like they're there with their professor dad dead mom so that's similar too mm -hmm. um they do have a lot of independence but it's a very loving and caring family so that's a little bit different um but i i can never recommend those books enough like okay so um i have two i would say read slightly betters because this wasn't a book that i abhor 
Um, it just, I had some problems with them with it. Um, so my first one is the evolution of Calpurnia Tate by Jacqueline Kelly, um, which of course has some sequels and some, um, some no, smaller a books. Young reader series. Yeah. Young reader series attached to it. Um, and it's set in 1899. It's a young girl called Calpurnia Tate who is kind of teaching herself to be a scientist and learning about the world around her. And I feel like it's a much better representation of children, um, dealing with wild things and nature. <laughs> at least in my taste because I'm a big softie when it comes to animals um, and then um, the other one is uh, the first book in the in Avi's uh, The Tales of Dimwood Forest it's called Poppy um, but it's it's a whole series it's about animals and the reason why I picked this is because they're in charge of their own destinies <laughs> And so it's, you know, it's not um, always smooth sailing and there's there's ups and downs, but the whole series is um, about these different animals um, in, in this forest and the adventures they have and the family and community that they have together. For this book, for Rascal, we drank something called the Salty Raccoon. What did you guys think? I really liked it. Yeah, I did too. It was, uh, it's kind of like a margarita. So apparently it is, um, there is a restaurant called Harold's Cabin in Charleston, South Carolina, which is partially owned by Bill Murray. Oh, and this is problematic fave. (laughs) (laughs) But this is sort of like their signature drink. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's got, uh, let me look at the ingredients. It's like vodka. Tequila has no vodka. No vodka. (laughs) vodka. It has tequila. And we actually got the exact tequila that they mentioned in the recipe, which is tequila Espelon Blanco, uh, rosemary simple syrup, which we made with rosemary from my garden, uh, fresh lime juice, uh, sea salt, and a sprig of rosemary. And I liked it. It was really good. Very refreshing. I liked it more than I thought I would um, because essentially I was I was thinking it would taste mostly like tequila, mm-hmm. um, which isn't bad. I just, you know, but it can be overpowering. But this tastes like Christmas to me. It's less abrasive than a regular margarita. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually can't drink regular margaritas because I'm old now and I get yeah. <laughs> and I get heartburn. You mean you're ageless? I'm ageless and timeless and that means I get heartburn now <laughs> when I drink too much acidity. But this was really nice and the fresh rosemary made a big di- I love having aromatic herbs in my cocktails. I do too. Do you ever go to a bar when they slap the basil to get the oils no, going? No, I've never seen how had a basil slap. That's Hashtag awesome. It was the basil. <laughs> <laughs> I was at um, you, can you slap my basil? <laughs> there was a bartender at the Four Seasons where we had a Christmas party for my office one year and he had a whole thing of basil and he would slap it to and it releases I mean, the oils. Yeah. Oh my god. I wonder if that works with mint. It would be way easier than muddling. We have drank we have had some bad drinks, and this one was a surprise. Yeah. I, I was not sure what to expect. It got I think we had maybe a little too much salt because mine got a little salty toward the bottom. Um but then, you know, Rascal was salty to be locked up, so it works. <laughs> he was mischievous. With the the taste of, of his tears for taste being locked in the, in the cage. He was in his harness. <laughs> the tears that he had when he was in his harness. Uh, um, so I think that's about it. Do you have anything else? Uh, so Do you want to plug some stuff? Oh, yeah, plug sure. Some stuff. So um, I write for a website called Adventures in Poor Taste. Uh, AIPT Comics is our sort of rebranded name. And some people get a little weird about 
the title. Uh, they think we're insulting them for not. But anyway, it's a pop culture website focused primarily on comics, uh, also wrestling. <laughs> it's not what I write about, but a lot of the guys are very into it. So um, we do a weekly podcast called Adventures in Pod Taste. And I am one of the co-hosts with uh, two other gentlemen. And we talk about movies and TV and books and comics and music and whatever kind of strikes our fancy every week. So check us out. Awesome. And that is available uh, on iTunes, Stitcher, all the things. Thank you so much for listening. We talked about Rascal This Week by Sterling North, and we were joined by Alyssa Jackson. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was delightful. I'm so happy you could make it. <laughs> to find out what we're up to next and to hear about giveaways and all kinds of fun local events, please like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and sign up for our newsletter. Thanks so much. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N E W B E R Y T A R T dot com.